This program is being monitored by Spirit for quality purposes. Welcome to the Faith and More podcast. This is a trans-denominational podcast. Everyone is welcome and safe here, no matter what your faith is or isn't. Hello, my name is Reverend Angel Wise, and I'll be your host. I am an ordained trans-denominational minister, director of Oblates Perpetual Light, a shamanic light worker specializing in intuitive quantum and angelic healing, a studying Kabbalist and life coach. I firmly believe that the divine works through people every day to help us. These angels and saints are so very humble. Many of us don't know they exist or existed. Each week we'll explore the lives of these amazing beings. We will also explore topics that can help your faith, no matter what it is or isn't. The goal of this show is to inspire, encourage, educate, uplift, strengthen, and heal you and your faith. So be sure to follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Bless you and enjoy the show. So before we begin, let us roll the disclaimers. The views and opinions expressed by the host, moi, are solely, which I mean that literally, mine. Any and all content provided is my opinion and is not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. I always recommend that you, the listener, further investigate, contemplate, and meditate on everything that is shared. ISEs, individual soul experiences, will vary. Listening discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the show, everyone. How is everyone doing? I so hope and pray everyone is well and blessed. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for finding us. This is my deepest hope and sincerest prayer that you find everything that you're searching for in a podcast, especially a faith-based podcast here and more. And if you're returning, infinite thanks, blessings, and love for being a longtime loyal lover and supporter of the show. It is because of you that this show is here. So before we begin, I do have a little backstory, and I promise I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. A little backstory to share with regard to today's show. It was in 2004, which I know it doesn't seem very long ago, but you know it's almost been 20 years ago. Uh, my wife, spiritual partner, twin flame, everything and all uh, and more, uh, Haven, was watching the news. And she's seen that a group of Tibetan monks were coming to town to do a sand mandala at a library in downtown Cincinnati. And we lived um, about 10 miles away from Cincinnati. And so she thought it would be a great idea if we all went, if she and me and our son went. Uh, this was during the time when we could not afford a vehicle. So we took the public transportation. We took a bus and went downtown. And it was truly one of the most amazing experiences we've all had in our lifetime. Uh, really, really was. I mean, I can't express enough how life-changing, literally, it was. Um, as soon as we walked in into the library, we were greeted by a very warm, welcoming, funny and amazing being by the name of Scott Belmo Belmer. And he prefers to be called Belmo. Uh, Belmo is, among many things, an, an incredible author, 
Um, if you are looking for anything Beatles related, he has so many books on the Beatles. He is like a guru, sage, uh, world renowned uh, for his knowledge and expertise on everything Beatles. So he and his amazing wife, Terry, greeted us and made us feel so welcome and at home and introduced us to the monks that were there. Uh, before they started working on the sand mandala, which they had already been doing for a few days. Uh, we were there probably the last two days before they dismantled it. And it was just an incredible experience. Um, our son, Talon, who was, let me see if I can do the math of how old he was at that time. He was 12, 12 years old. And the monks just flocked to Talon. They absolutely loved him and saw him as a brother. And there's so much more to this story that I'll share in, in a future show or shows. Um, but they just immediately bonded with him and he with them, like they had known each other lifetimes. I mean, literally lifetimes. It was so much so that they sat him down with them and gave him some of the instruments that they use in creating the sand mandala. Now, you've got to, have to remember, the sand is not just any old sand or any old colored sand. This sand is very sacred. It is blessed beyond blessed. So they just don't give this to anyone, but they gave it to Talon and was showing him, showing him how to make the lines for the sand mandala. And it was just totally mind-blowing. Um, so Belmo was part of a, what they call Dharma center, which is a Buddhist teaching center, um, or school, however you want to refer to it as a meditation center. And he and George Soyster, who was the founder, um, were such amazing and are such amazing, great and loving people that they welcomed us to, you know, come to the monastery, not monastery, excuse me, to the Dharma center and, and hang out and meet and join if we wanted to. They even gave us rides because since we didn't have a car, they even came and picked us up, took us to the Dharma Center for uh, you know meditation and, and classes and things of that nature, and then, and then took us home. They're just beautiful, beautiful people. And that is where I met my teacher, uh, my Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Tenzin. And there was another teacher there. Um, who was in charge of the classes and an interpreter. Well, anyway, so I got to know these amazing beings and got to be part of their life for, although a short time, an amazing time. And as I was there, um, Belmo and George kept talking about these interviews that they had done with a previous group of um, monks that had came to town. And how they videotaped, and this is how old this is. It doesn't seem that old, is it, from 2000, 2004, but I guess about yeah, 20, 20, almost 24 years. Um, they actually interviewed these monks about their lives. And most of them, if not all of them, there was nine of them, uh, fled from Tibet, which was, which is overran and taken uh, by the communist Chinese government. And, you know, these, their journeys, most of them by themselves, were very hard, very horrendous. Um, the majority of them had to leave their families. The majority of them were quite young, if not at 
teenage age, like Talon's age, uh, when they left in the middle of the night, you know, going across the mountains of the Himalayas. Uh, it's just very, very, so beyond what our minds can grasp. So anyway, George and Belma are talking about these interviews and how they want to make a book about it, you know? And I was just like, like a dog with the ears up. I was like, what? They were like, yeah, you know, we've got all of these VHS tapes with these interviews, but we have to transcribe them, which um, means you have to literally sit down and listen to each word, word for word, and type it out. And then they would go through, you know, what was typed out and put it together in a book form. But neither one of them had the time to do it. And at that time, I had the time. So I volunteered and I was like, hey, you know, give me the videotapes. I will sit down and I will, you know, write all this, type all this up and, you know, get it all back to you in type form. That way you guys can get this book out because it's just it's mind blowing. And they were like, well, you know, it's going to be an extreme task, you know, very time consuming. Um, but we'll give you the, the videos. You can watch them. And if you want to do it after you watch the videos to see it, what you're getting yourself into, then you are more than welcome to, to do this. So I was over the moon, took the videos home. I was hooked. Absolutely. I was like, these are stories that must get out. These are stories that must be told. People have to, have to be able to have access to the stories of these individuals. It is just completely mind blowing. So I did. I had one of the first <laughs> ancient MP3 recorders. So, or I should say digital recorders. So I recorded the all of the VHS interviews to audio. And then I took them with me and I had an old beat up laptop. And while I'm riding the bus, because it takes, you know, it would take 45 minutes to get to work one way, even though it's only 10 miles on, on a bus. So I had plenty of time. So I'm listening to these interviews and I am typing word for word, stop, pause, back up, stop, pause, back up, pause, back up, pause, back up, type, 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 back up, listen, review. Anyway, within a matter of like four months or less, I had everything completed. And this was in 2004. So I gave everything to Belmo and he was able to start putting the book together. But then he was having a hard time finding someone to publish the book. Um, again, we don't realize how much political pull and power countries have. So if you're saying that you're wanting to publish a book about Tibetan monks that are fleeing communist China and telling stories of how the communist Chinese took their country from them by force and euthanized so many of their people, destroyed their culture. Um, there's a lot of people, public people that don't want to have anything to do with that because the Chinese government is very powerful and can, and it, you don't realize how much control they have in the United States or any country for that matter. It's very um, behind the scenes, but it's very, very powerful and strong. 
So a lot of publishing companies wouldn't have anything to do with it. So Bellman was almost to the point they were thinking of self-publishing, which he did that with a lot of his Beatles books, um, until Lotus Press uh, replied to him saying that, hey, you know, we would love to do this, um, but, you know, we think it needs a little something more. And so Belmo and I were talking, and we agreed that if he could get a foreword for the book from His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, that would really seal the deal. So we contacted um, His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, sent him a copy of the manuscript so he could read it over and either sign off on it or, you know, veto it. And he was all on board. He replied with a, a small but very powerful forward, and that really pushed the book into print. The book did not go into print until 2006, so, you know, four years after um, my involvement in it. So today I would love to share with all of you a few stories from this incredible book. And the book is titled, In Their Own Words, the true stories of nine Buddhist monks escape from Tibet by Scott Belmo Belmer. And I will have a link to the book in, um, in the show description. You can get it on Amazon. Let me get my notes out real quick. It goes new for $13.77 and used. You can get it from $11.18 or less. Uh, so, again, I really strongly believe that regardless of what your political stance and beliefs are as far as uh, the communist Chinese government and country, um, please get the book. Check it out. It's a thin book, but it's so beyond powerful. And I hope by sharing just a few of the stories from the book with you all today that you will be as hooked on it as I was when I first learned of it, when it was in the inception phases. So I don't know what your all's thoughts or views are on the Chinese government, uh, communist Chinese government. I mean, I, I do everything I can to stay as far away from politics as possible. But when it's something like this, um, it's something that really hits a nerve, you know, when it's about families and children and, um, who are just helpless and have no way um, to stick up or, you know, defend themselves. It's, it's truly, truly tragic. Um, but it's also inspiring because it leads us to look at our little lives and all the things that we put emphasis on about, you know, this is, I don't like this and this is going wrong and oh my God, it's raining today. I don't want to go out in the rain and oh, I got to go to work and blah, blah, blah makes us it makes our problems seem very minute compared to what others go through uh, so anyway i beyond recommend the book i think everyone should have a copy of it i do not receive any proceeds from this book um, as a matter of fact i was just the transcriber um, i donated my time and my heart because i wanted this story to get out um, the proceeds go to uh to belmo and part of those proceeds will go to Droprung, excuse me, Droprung Goman Monastery as well. So a percentage of the cost of the book goes to the monks that are in the book. Okay, so I'll begin by reading the introduction 
uh, to the book, which was written by Belmo. It says, at the beginning of the new millennium, the Gamong Meditation and Dharma Center opened in Independence, Kentucky. Having a Buddhist study center in Northern Kentucky had been a longtime dream for George Soyster and Hisun Choi. George and Hisun had searched for the right location for many months before coming upon an old schoolhouse in the quiet town of Independence. With the help of some friends, they renovated the building and prepared their new center for the first of numerous visits by several Japong Gomong tour groups. The first tour group arrived at the center in 2001 and was kind enough to bless the fledgling center. It was then that we were able to experience firsthand the teachings of Buddhism and to hear some of the monks' stories. The following year, another tour group stayed with us at the center. We shared meals, traveled to museums, colleges, and local sites with the monks. Our daily contact brought us closer together, and some special bonds were forged. It was at this time that the monks so graciously agreed to tell us their stories. The interviews were held in the Dharma room at the center by George Surster and Belmo. The tour group's interpreter, Topton, translated our questions and the monks' answers. Each monk told us their stories individually. A few gave us detailed accounts of their lives, while others were a bit less forthcoming. Several of the monks were young and a bit shy about telling us about themselves. One of the monks, as you will see, spoke for over an hour with hardly any prompting from us. When we were done with the interviews, we found that their stories painted an amazing picture. We had heard stories of the destruction of Tibetan and Buddhist culture by the communist Chinese during the past 40 years, but we were unprepared to hear the horrors from the monks themselves. Through the tour's interpreter, we inquired of each monk's background, tales of escape and life outside Tibet. It was an emotional several days for all of us as each monk related his personal account to us. Several, several excuse me, of the monks broke down and wept as they told us their stories. Some of the monks are quite young and they still miss their families and their lives they left behind. They saw things that no civilized society should allow to happen. We have kept their stories almost exactly as they were told to us. Grammar and punctuation was given a backseat to the expression of ideas, thoughts, and memories in their own words. We felt in this way the reader would be closer to the monks and to the events that led them to India and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Emotions ranged from sadness, longing, happiness, anger, compassion, hope, and loss. It was obvious that their faith was a great aid to their healing and their positive attitude. These are the accounts of only nine monks when one realizes that thousands of men, women, and children have suffered similarly it is nearly unfathomable that such destruction continues even today, but it does. Every day, hundreds of Tibetans attempt to escape the Chinese oppression in their country. A few are able to make the difficult journey across the Himalayas. Many more are caught and imprisoned. Some are tortured or killed, and far too many die of starvation or exposure during that dangerous trek through the mountains. Our intent with this book is to inform as many people as possible of the terror and inhumanity being perpetrated by the communist Chinese government in Tibet. Hopefully, people will be moved to speak out against the occupation and to assist financially the refugees in India.
And everyone, again, this was 2004, and he was talking 40 years. It's now 20 years since. Uh, it's been almost 60 years since the Chinese occupation um, of Tibet. And things are worse now than ever. Um, it's to the point to where there, you know, any Tibetans that are left are in ghettos. Uh, they are servants. Um, they are not permitted to practice their faith or their religion. Anytime someone is seen um, even hinting to being a Buddhist, um, they are, you know, immediately imprisoned, tortured, and oftentimes killed. Um, if they show anything as far as regards towards His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, they are imprisoned and killed. If you, it is illegal and punishable by death if you are found with a photo of His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama. So even just having a photo of the Dalai Lama is a death penalty. And believe you me, folks, I know that might sound extreme, but they are beyond serious. The Chinese government is beyond serious about this. And they will crush anyone and anything that stands in their way. And they took Tibet. Now, people would say, well, why Tibet? It's mostly a mountainous region. It's very barren. It's oftentimes cold. It's at a high altitude. How about uranium? Yes, Tibet is very rich in uranium. And uranium is used for nuclear power amongst many things. It is a very valuable commodity. Um, and it's an unrefined commodity that Tibetans didn't mess with because Tibetans are very earth-focused beings, not just spiritual, but they believe in nature. They believe in how important it is to take care of our planet and our resources and how everything is so interconnected. So they would not, nor would they have a reason to mine uranium. But au contraire, the Chinese Communist government has many, many, many uses worldwide for uranium. That's where Russia gets its uranium from. North Korea gets its, you know, all of the communist nations get their uranium from China. And China gets it from mining it in Tibet. So to help protect these monks, um, George and Belmo changed the names with the help of the interpreter. Uh, so the names that are used are not the actual names of the monks. I mean, a lot of them that were in the tour were using um, pseudonyms, you know, fictitious names. Uh, because, again, just because they were here doesn't mean that the Chinese government is not here as well, because they always are. And they're always watching, especially, you know, anyone who's anti-communist um, Chinese. And again, I know that sounds really far out there. It sounds really paranoid and almost conspiracy theorist, but it's actually true, folks. It really is. So the first story I'd like to read is um, about the monk Paljor Songun. And he says, my name is Paljor. It means wealth. I was born in eastern Tibet in the Songun province, thus his last name, Songun. It means blue lake. This is a mountainous area in Himalayas, which we say Himalayas, they say Himalayas, or Himalayas, we say. They say Himalayas, we say Himalayas. It's one thing I noticed about their pronunciation. Um, so 
from an, a mountainous area in the Himalayas. I have one younger and one older brother. My youngest brother is a doctor in Tibet. Since the 1960s and 1970s, my parents and our family had a very hard life under the Chinese. The Tibetans had to hide their wealth from the Chinese. They told the Tibetans in the 1970s that we'd be free, but we were deceived. and The Chinese took everything from us. My parents were farmers and nomads, but in the 1970s, the Chinese said all were equal. So they took from the rich and were supposed to give to the poor, but they kept it all for themselves. I became a monk at the age of 13. I had to attend a Chinese school until I was 13 years old. They taught us the Chinese ideology and that Buddhism was not good. They only taught Tibetan for one hour a day. The rest of the time was studying Chinese ideology. At age 13, I decided I didn't want to study Chinese. So I went to the monastery to study Buddhism, but there wasn't much opportunity because the Chinese forbade many of the teachings. I knew about the Dalai Lama in India and knew I must escape Tibet and receive his blessings in India. One of my cousins was taken by the Chinese and put in prison for a long time. Chinese killed thousands of monks, nuns, and other Tibetans for no reason. I escaped Tibet in 1990 to meet the Dalai Lama, and I wanted to study the Kalachakra teachings in India. The other reason I left was that I knew very little about Tibet except that there were no human rights in Tibet for Tibetans. When I reached India at the age of 17, I learned about Tibet and its history. And I finally learned Tibet had been a country for thousands of years. In Tibet, there is no history of the country taught. Most young Tibetans know nothing about their own country because the Chinese only teach their own ideology. For instance, even if you say free Tibet, you will be put in prison and you can't show the Tibetan flag. On the way to India, I crossed the Himalayas. I traveled with two other monks. We were from the same monastery in Tibet. We had about 500 Chinese currency. By the time we reached Lhasa, which is in India, no, excuse me, Lhasa is in Tibet, we were out of money. But fortunately, we met a man in Lhasa who gave us about 60 to 70 Chinese currency. With that money, we bought some food and drinks. Then we started our journey to India. And now the interviewer asked, it was at this point in the interview when Paljor had to stop because his emotions overwhelmed him. He continued a few minutes later. Because we were very young, we miss our parents. Sometimes we met some Tibetans who gave us money to buy food. We were traveling on foot and we had many hard times along the way. Sometimes we had to beg for food. Many nights we slept on the streets and towns or on the ground in the forest. Often we slept in caves or at the bottom of the mountains. The most difficult part of the journey was the time we tried to cross a very huge river in the winter. In order to cross that river, there is a small bridge there, but the bridge was guarded by Chinese soldiers. So we had to go downriver to find a place to cross. And because it was winter, there was much ice in the river. It was very difficult to cross, and the ice cut our legs, and we were all bleeding badly. After that, it took us two days to cross the mountains. The wounds in our legs were still bleeding badly, and it was very painful. We had few clothes, and we were very cold. Along the way, we saw many bodies of Tibetans who had died of starvation in the cold. We saw one person 
who had died standing. He was high up in the Himalayan mountains. Then after some time, we reached the Nepal border. As soon as we could be bought, as soon as we could, excuse me, we bought butter because we could not afford medicine for our wounds. We applied the butter on our wounds to stop the bleeding and heal the cuts. Fortunately, we made it to the Tibetan Reception Center in Nepal, and those people were good, and they helped us. They cured our wounds, gave us food to eat and clothes to wear. They also bought us bus tickets to go to India. We went to the monastery where we met His Holiness. I saw His Holiness the Dalai Lama. There were about 40 of us who went together. In that group, we were all my, were all my friends. We were the youngest ones there. We were allowed to sit in front in the front row. As soon as we received his blessings, I was very happy in my mind, the happiest I have ever been. He then asked us where we were from and why we left our homes. And then he blessed us. Because we were the youngest, he advised us to continue our studies and to join the monastery. And for those of you who aren't familiar with who His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama is, he's the equivalent of like the Pope, um, but at a much bigger scale, if you could imagine that. Uh, we did a show on His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama. It was season two, episode 10. We also did a show on the Buddha, season three, episode 11. And we also did a show on one of my favorite Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Dilgo Kinsu Rinpoche, season four, episode 15. So be sure to check those out if you'd like some more information or some more back information to help you understand this show more in these stories. And we continue. Now it has been 10 years since I've been at the monastery. The monastery sees to all our needs. Most of the monks who go on tour have a special talent or have completed their studies. But in my case, I have all the necessary documents, so I am asked to join the group. Also, I feel the responsibility to do something to help the monastery. I know many traditional dances and songs of Tibet, and that is why I was chosen to join the group. When I was in India, I heard many things about America, that it was a big and rich country. Everyone has the equal opportunity here to do what they want. And the traffic rules here are very good, unlike the traffic in India. I am very happy in my group, and I like to work together with other monks. Whenever we make the sand mandala or our performances, we always work together and make fun and make laughter. The most difficult part for me is whenever we travel for 16 to 17 hours. It is very difficult because I am not used to it. Like the Native American culture, the Tibetan culture is in danger. Everyone must try to work hard to preserve these ancient cultures. As soon as we finish the tour, we'll go back to India. I'll continue my studies. I have been away for a year. Sometime after I have finished all of my studies and obtained the Geshe degree, then I might come back to America and learn about modern education or maybe share my knowledge with the world. I have a special interest in learning the Christian philosophies. I read about many Christian groups that try to help society. I want to learn about many different philosophies. I would like to say to the leaders of the world to look into the truth of Tibet and other small nations. You will know that Tibet was an independent country for many years. Try to promote peace and give the people basic human rights. No matter what kind of religion or what race, I request that all leaders of the world to work together for peace. As an ordinary monk in our group, 
we always try to pray to help promote peace on earth. The next story is Damcho Punsak. My name is Damcho Punsak. I was born in the Kham area, K-H-A-M, which is in the northeastern part of Tibet. And I was born in the year, he pauses, I was born on the 15th of April. I'm not very sure with the year. I think I am 30 years old. And so he is asked, if you could tell us about your family, if you have brothers and sisters, if your parents are still living and where they are right now. He replies, my parents, they still live in Tibet and I have four younger brothers. I am the eldest brother. One of my brothers came to India in the year 1990, but I went back to Tibet last year. The reason I went back was because I missed my parents and my country. So I decided to go back. But since I did not have any papers or travel documents, I was caught on the border by the Chinese troops and imprisoned for a few months. At first, I was caught in Shigatse, which is a small city in Tibet, which is near central Tibet. I was put into the prison in that area for one month. After that, I was transferred to another prison. Then they kept on transferring me to other prisons. In total, I have been in more than 10 different prisons in Tibet. The Chinese troops don't let me talk to other prisoners. If I talked to the other prisoners, they would beat me, and they never let me talk about Tibetan government in exile, and they never let me talk about His Holiness the Dalai Lama to other prisoners. In the prison, I only received once in a day a bowl of rice with no vegetables and a cup of water. That was the only food I was fed in a day. My brother also had been arrested when he came back from India because the Chinese troops think he might be some sort of spy of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He had spent a few years in India in the monastery of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. My brother was with some other political prisoners, and then finally they transferred me to the same prison in the northeast part of Tibet. My parents went to the prison and tried to release me. Fortunately, they were able to release me, my brother and his son. But at that time, my mother told me she could not recognize her son because he became so weak, health poor, and he looked sick because the Chinese troops in the prison beat him and they treated him badly in the prison and he only got a bowl of rice and a cup of water. Just a few days ago, I called my mother on the telephone. I called from here to Tibet and talked to my mom. She told me each and every story in detail. The main reason why I escaped Tibet is that I was sent to India by my father. My father does not like the Chinese government, so he finally requested me to go to India to take part in the monastery and also to follow His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Another main reason is because my father's real brother was killed by the Chinese troops. He was deliberately killed by the Chinese troops while in prison. How it happened is that one day, while he was having a meal with his family, suddenly some of the troops came to his house, dragged him, and put him into prison. After about seven days, his family received a letter from the Chinese prison that they had already decided to kill him. They had given him a death sentence. Then the Chinese government called all the family members and also his grandfather and grandmother and their parents. During that day, they were forced to come see their son, who was my uncle, while they decided to kill him. They wrote out a huge sign in front of him and attached it to his body. 
They put some bamboo poles in front of him, and then right in front of their naked eyes, all the families, the Chinese troops just shot a bullet in the back of his head, just killed him on the spot. So that's why my father always advised me, try to escape Tibet, try to go to India under His Holiness the Dalai Lama. The main reason for killing my uncle was that during the 1959 and late 1950s, when the Chinese troops came to occupy Tibet, my father's brother was a very brave and very strong man. And he was in one of the groups to kill all the Chinese troops, and he killed about 30 Chinese troops. That's why he got the death sentence. Also, soon after they killed my father's brother, they also tried to catch my father and imprison him. During that time, my father was only 20 years old. As soon as he noticed the Chinese army or military going to catch him, he left his home and went to some other places for five years. After five years, my father came back to his home. And next he's asked, when did you leave Tibet and what were the circumstances like on your journey to India? I left Tibet in the year 1990. My younger brother also left after one month. When I left my family, when I left my country, most of my family did not know whether I leave or not because my father sent me to India. On the way of escaping, I didn't face any special or any harsh circumstances except on the way because when you cross the border, you always walk in the middle of the night and during the daytime, you just try to hide in the thick jungle or forest. On the way, the worst thing that happened to me was for three or four days, I was running out of my food. I had a very hard time. I had a very terrible time. And my worry is that the Chinese government might put my younger brother into prison once again. Because just recently, when I talked to my mother and relatives on the telephone, I heard that in our village, the Chinese government kidnapped the head of the village monastery and also the senior monks. I'm always worrying about my younger brother because he was once in a prison and they might try to put him into prison again. So here's another question that was posed to him. Were you a monk when you left Tibet or did you become a monk after you got to India? At that time, I just became a monk when I left Tibet. Another question, how long did it take you to reach India? When I reached Lhasa, which is the capital city of Tibet at that time, it was in the month of April. When I reached India, it was in the month of July. So April, May, June, July, almost four months. Next question, when you reached India, was there a group of people who helped you and assisted you? And then did you continue your studies? As soon as I reached India, I met up with another group of refugees we were all taken into care by the Tibetan Reception Center in Delhi and Dharamsala, which is in India. They gave us food. They gave us clothes. They gave us some money as pocket money. And then finally, we decided to go down to southern part of India where the monastery is situated to continue my studies. Actually, my father told me to tell the story of his brother to His Holiness the Dalai Lama and tried to get the blessings for my father's brother. But I was unable to approach His Holiness the Dalai Lama and could not get the opportunity to tell my story to His Holiness. But I visualized that His Holiness the Dalai Lama had blessed my father's brother. Next question, how were you chosen for this tour group? I've been working for the monastery for the past few years. In the monastery, we have a special group called Special Chanting Group. I was in that group for the last few years, and I'm told I am very good in different kinds of chanting and I am skilled in making the sand mandala. That's why I was chosen 
to be in this group. Next question, had you been to the United States before or had you traveled to Europe before with this group? He replied, no, this is my first time to the United States. Next, he asked, any impressions about the United States? Anything that you found was amazing or very interesting? He replied, I've had many kinds of different experiences since I got to the United States. The first, this is that I find that all the citizens of this country, they have 100% human rights. They are open and they have every rights. Back in Tibet, we don't have the religious rights or the political rights or the human rights also. As soon as I got to this country, I thought that all the citizens of this country are lucky because they can do whatever they wish, and that is good. Another one is that the Americans are very open, and as far as I'm concerned, they are friendly to the monks, and I really appreciate that. Also, I noticed that there are many organizations that support Tibet and Tibetan people's cause, and that is also appreciated. And he asked another question, what do you like about traveling with the group? And maybe something you don't like so much about being on the road. He replied, I'm very happy with my group. Whenever I am in India, I am very happy with other monks. I'm friendly to other monks. And even this group, most of the monks are good to me. And I'm very happy with the monks. I like traveling with the group like this. But one thing is that sometimes my mind just comes up with all the things that happened to me and my family in Tibet under the Chinese occupation. And sometimes when we travel for long distances, my mind thinks about all those sufferings that we experienced under the communist Chinese government. At that time, I feel kind of bad, so sad. The day before yesterday, I was playing with the monks and we were having a very fun time, but suddenly I decided to call my mom in Tibet. I got to talk to my mom and she asked me when I was coming back to Tibet to visit her and my family members. I told her that maybe I would try to come back to Tibet after three years. That very moment, my mother, she keep on crying and crying. And she just can't speak any words after that. Again, the rest of the day, my mind was full of tension and worry about my mom, my family. Otherwise, I'm very happy here. Next question. What was your impression of the Shawnee Indians and making music with them? And for those of you in this book, it talks about they actually got the Tibetan group together with a group of Shawnee Native Americans, and they had a powwow. It was amazing. When I met all those Native Americans the other day, I noticed that there are some minorities in this country, and they are striving to preserve their culture, which is very good. And at the same time, I thought about the Chinese government trying to banish away all the Tibet and Tibetan culture from Tibet. My mind was thinking about how it might be possible for the Tibetans to someday there will be no Tibetans and Tibetan culture in this world. At the same time, I really appreciate their way of preserving their culture. But on the other hand, I just thought in my mind that it might happen to Tibetans soon. It's quite tragic for me. Okay, folks, I have one more story that I want to share from the book. And this one's the longest one. This is the one Belma was talking about that um, the monk did not need any prompting. He told his story and he talked for over an hour. Um, it is Geshe Lobsong Kunga. And if, for those of you who don't know what Geshe means, Geshe is the equivalent of a PhD. So um, he has his master's degree in Tibetan Buddhism and is a high-ranking teacher. Says, my title is Geshe and my name is Lobsong Kunga. The meaning of Lobsong is good heart or good soul. 
Kumba means everybody loves or everybody likes. I was born in one of the nomad families in eastern part of Tibet, which is called the So Nongpo, the Blue Lake. I was born in the year 1964 in the month of November. And I don't know the date because for most of the old Tibetans, the date is not important. We don't know how to keep the dates, including myself. My mother and father have nine children, brothers and sisters. I am the eldest one. When I was a little boy, I was raised in one of the nomad families until I was about five or six years old. I did not know anything about what was going on in Tibet, but I do remember when I was five or about six years old at the time, all the belongings, all the cattle and all the material possessions that my family possessed were forced to be contributed or given to the communist Chinese government. My grandfather, he is a very special man because in his body, he can welcome the other deities or spirits. And through his body and through his mouth, that particular spirit can speak and protect the people. That's why the communist Chinese government, they consider him as a very evil man. We had a hard time with the Chinese government. Unfortunately, he was caught by the Chinese government and they dragged him to some place and they beat him. For three days, he could not take his breath, but he was not dead. He was still alive because his body was warm. After three days, he was able to breathe again. I don't know this for myself. I heard this story from my parents. They consider my grandfather to be the reincarnation of a great being. In his previous life, he was a great being from great realms. He has a very special and strange things happened in his life. He can also invite the spirits and other spirits into his mind. Those spirits can speak with other people through his body. So he's like a channeler while using his body, his mind, and his speech. There's always strife from Chinese troops whenever there are some problems or whenever there's suffering or sickness in Tibetan tradition. He would always go to the person like this and request him to invite the spirits and figure out what has happened to that sick man or what are the causes of the problems. So he's saying that his grandfather was a shaman. What he does, since there is strife from the Chinese government, he always helps other people by inviting the spirits into his mind in the middle of the night, sometimes one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, in the middle of the night, he tries to recite many prayers and do some chantings. And then he would invite the spirits into his body. Sometimes while he was sleeping, he could talk as if he was awake because all the spirits came into his body and all those spirits are talking to other people. Whenever he invites the other spirits into his mind, what other people do is burn the incense, a lot of incense, and they try to remove all the evil and bad spirits from his body, like the Native Americans. And then he has a special dress. As soon as he puts on this special clothing, the consciousness of his mind comes with a particular spirit. And also we are supposed to give him some rice or barley to bless it. What he does with that uncooked rice or barley is very interesting. On his right hand, he holds a very sharp knife. The spirits are in his mind and he cuts his tongue and produces a lot of blood. Then he mixes that blood with the barley or uncooked rice and he gives it to the sick people to heal their body or whatever it may be. It really works and it does help. And as soon as the spirit goes away from his mind, then there are no scars or wounds on his tongue. Yeah, I know, quite fantastical. 
But this is true. I mean, this is very hard for us to understand. Even longtime listeners uh, of the show who have heard some really fantastical stories over the course of, you know, here we're midway through season six. So, you know, five and a half seasons of shows. Uh, this is quite fantastical. But these things do exist. Anyone who follows Native American culture knows of healing shamans and the, their power and their connection with the divine, um, with the creator, and how they are, you know, almost, you know, human or as you would say, earth angels that are here to help and heal. And although their um, methods may be very bizarre to us, we have to remember they're, um, they're very ancient. Their ways are very ancient. And it's been passed down from, from shaman to shaman. And um, it's just, as he said, he's not a shaman, but he has witnessed this. And it does work. And his grandfather was able to heal a lot of people. And if you think it's weird about special dress and, you know, kind of putting on the spirit when he puts on certain clothes, look at priest, Roman Catholic priest. You know, when they put on their garb, uh, their vestments, what, what happens? They're transformed. So, uh, you know, similar applies. So he continues. And also, I remember that my mother was sick for a long time. And one time she was very bad. She was seriously ill. She was laying on the bed. For many days. Then in the middle of the one night, my parents invite him, his grandfather, to our home to do the blessings, the healing and things. And then what he does is he took a knife and he cut the breast of my mother from her left side nearest the heart. I can clearly remember this, though I was very small. I can see a big hole where he cut my mother's breast. You can see a huge hole inside. At that time, because I was very small, I was scared and very worried about my mom. I woke up really early the next morning since I was scared and worried about my mom. I went to my mom and asked her what happened to her and that wound. Then I saw just a scratch. There's nothing there. Just a scratch is there. This is something that I saw through my naked eyes. This is really amazing. I don't know if people believe this or not, but I saw it with my naked eyes. That's why the Chinese government regarded religion as a poison, and they especially hate the people who are religious, like my grandfather, who has the spirits in his body or does these kinds of things. They are, also, are, excuse me, they are especially stressing or focusing on these types of people. That is why the Chinese government people do not like my grandfather, and also my grandfather didn't like any of the Chinese government people. That's why he never used Chinese clothes or Chinese hats, because most of the Tibetans wear that time. Some of them, they use the Chinese hats because they got them at a very cheap price. But he never used the products made by Chinese or produced in China. Also, he is putting efforts to keep our culture alive. He's always appreciating the ancient culture of Tibet and is always advising all of us to preserve this ancient culture very proudly. Whenever we listen to the radio about the Chinese news, he doesn't like us to do that. One day he heard from some of his friends that Mao Zedong had died. He was happy with that news that he borrowed some Chinese currency from some of his friends. And then he went to the market and bought a small radio. He paid 40 Chinese currency just to listen to that news. At that time, all the Tibetans 
was supposed to tie a black piece of cloth here around the left bicep. And also, the small children are forced to attend meetings. Does any of this sound familiar to people? I want to say Holocaust. This is very similar to how the Jewish people were treated in the Holocaust. So he continues that they were always announcing that Mao Zedong is a very good man and he did such, such good to Tibet and for Tibetan people. They're just trying to educate people with that ideology. Each and every Tibetan is forced to tie a black piece of cloth. Um, and as soon as we got home, since my grandpa does not like anything about Chinese activities, we had to keep it away from his eyes of my grandfather. This is big, a big story about my grandfather, but my father, he is a very simple man. He's not like my grandfather. He's just an ordinary being. I spent almost 17 years as a nomad with my family, and now I am 38 years old. Sometimes when I look back to my childhood life, I think that I was really lucky to be born in a nomad family because even though we don't have many facilities like normal families, the people who are nomads, they are very peaceful and friendly to each other. and We experience happiness all the time. When I look back to my childhood, my early life, I feel very happy. The main reasons, or excuse me, reason why the nomads are very happy is that they are very happy with their cattle, all the animals. They treat their animals as something very precious, and they totally depend on their animals. They are very happy with their animals. Another reason is since the nomads are always busy with the animals, they don't know anything about the politics or the issues or anything about the things going on in the world. For them, even if the world has a problem, they are happy because they are ignorant. They don't have any idea. That's why they spend their lives peacefully, and they are very happy. They totally depend on those animals. They regard their animals as the precious ones for them. For them, when they feed their cattle, if the valley is not good and it rains too much, then this is a big problem for them. During the summer season, as nomads, we built small bamboo houses in Tibet. When it rains, it comes into there and everything is wet. Since we do have lots of sheep, goats, and other small animals, there is a danger of fox attacking sheep and goats. That's another problem with nomads. Their main food, since we live in very high mountains, is meat, butter, cheese, and milk. The products of the animals are the main food for the nomads. If they had a very beautiful day when the sun shines, then they try to find some other beautiful place where, they are, where there are many places for the cattle. They make their bamboo houses again. They keep searching for places. Every season, they go to a different place. During the summer season, they go up into the mountains, and in the winter season, they come down and live in the valleys because it is too cold up there. And in the spring season, because it is such a beautiful season, a lot of grass is coming out and is green, so again, they go to different places. I remember during the spring and summer season, we see many different varieties of beautiful flowers. All the flowers bloom out, and there are many beautiful different kinds of birds singing in the forest. I miss these in my life. Here in this country, I noticed some of the same flowers that grow in Tibet. There are some flowers that even grow in this country. My family has 400 sheep, 70 yaks, about 20 horses, and some other small animals. I remember when I was small, we would ride on the horses and we would do horse races. 
I remember all the good days. Most of the time, when I look back at my childhood, I think that I'm very lucky to be born in a nomadic family. I spent my childhood in a very peaceful environment. But on the other hand, sometimes I feel regret that I spend my time like this as a nomad. Why? Because I didn't get the opportunity to study and I didn't get the opportunity to educate my mind. Sometimes I feel regret. During the winter time, all of the nomadic, excuse me, nomadic people would come down to the town because it is too cold up there in the mountains. We just came down and I remember that I attended classes. These were not schools, but a group of people from whom you can learn some letters, how to write, how to read, only one hour in a day. And then every year in the winter time, my family sent me to that group of people to learn how to read. Finally, I think I spent five years learning like what you would go to in a fifth grade. When I was 16 years old, I saw a monk for the first time. It was during one of the Tibetan New Year gatherings in Tibetan tradition. What we do on the first day of the Tibetan New Year, that is called Losar, Losar means New Year, we go to different families and try to visit each other. And that time I saw a monk and I felt so peaceful and I felt very different state in my mind. Then I decided in my mind to become a monk. I told my parents I wanted to become a monk and they let me become a monk. They are kind and that monk I met became my teacher. He was a kind man because he always came to the village to help the ordinary people. When I told my parents I wanted to become a monk, my parents told me that there is no place to study to become a monk in our village. Much of the time of the year is spent up on the mountains and they are nomads. There is no place for the monks to do their studies. Fortunately, that monk, that Geshe, is a very kind monk. He decided to take me with him and he led me to become a monk in his monastery, which is called Cool boom. At that time, I had turned 17 years old. Once I reached the monastery, I found out there are rules and regulations made by Chinese communist government. One rule is that nobody is to become a monk unless he is 18 years of age. Again, I had some problems because here I was only 17 years old. In that monastery, there are about 60 monks, and all the monks are of very old age. There were no young monks. I would like to make one thing clear, the reason why the Chinese government made this rule. In the schools, no Tibetans are allowed to become monks until they are the age of 18. The main reason is that the schools, they teach communist ideology. They turn their mind into the communist. Once they reach the age of 18, their mind is already developed with communist ideology, and they consider Buddhist religion as some kind of poison. I was lucky because I was a nomad and didn't have any ideology of communist government, I became a monk. I remember in my parents' home, we had a small altar. Also, we had some pictures of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the picture that depicts his visit to China. Since my parents know nothing of the political issues, they are just very religious. They have, they, excuse me, they have deep faith in His Holiness the Dalai Lama. That is why they keep a portrait of His Holiness. Even in these days, there are many young Tibetans who don't know anything about Tibet, even though they are Tibetans and live in Tibet. They don't know anything of Tibet, Tibetan religion, Tibetan culture. Most of them don't know the Tibetan flag or Tibetan national anthem because of the Chinese in the schools. One thing everybody knows is His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama, who is the second highest spiritual leader of Tibetan people.
I was only 17 years old. So because of the rules and regulations by the Chinese communist government to that monastery, I was not allowed to become a monk. I had to spend one year passing my time in the monastery trying to help the monks. And because I was not a monk, I was not allowed to wear a monk's clothes, and I had to wear casual dress for one year. At that time, the monks were repairing their temples, repairing their prayer halls, repairing the whole monastery because the Chinese government destroyed everything. You could see the damage done by the bombs and bullets. When I went to the monastery, which is called the Kumbum Monastery, the monks were repairing their monastery. I remember I had to spend my time in the monastery because I could not become a monk. I devoted my whole time to help the monks repair. I remember I always carry lots of supplies on my back up to the second floor. I helped the monks to repair the temple and the huge temple that is in the middle of that area once had rooms for the monks, but all the rooms were destroyed by the bombs and explosions of the Chinese government. I spent one year like that helping the monastery to repair. Then in the month of April, according to the Tibetan calendar, it is a very precious day for the Tibetans according to the Buddhist tradition. At that time, I had turned 18 and I was allowed to become a monk in that monastery. So finally, I became a monk in the month of April. I became a monk along with 20 new monks. Once we became monks at the Kumbum Monastery, we had to take some sort of transfer documents from the Chinese people. I had to go back to my parents' home and get all the paper documents because the Chinese government keep all the records on who became a monk. They keep track of all these things. I went back and told my parents, took all the papers, and then came back to the monastery. Again, I had a very big problem when I went back to my parents' home to get that letter, to get the approval letter. I remember there was a Chinese policeman who had the document. He denied issuing me the document because I was small. Even though I had just turned 18, he did not believe me because I was very short at the time. He didn't believe me and denied to me that document. At that time, I was angry. I spent one whole year in the monastery as an ordinary man. I had turned 18 and still they're denying me. They are not ready to issue me the transfer documents. If I don't have the transfer document, then again, they are not going to allow me to stay in the monastery because each and every person should be registered to the Chinese people. I had to argue with the Chinese policeman. I remember I told him that you cannot tell other people's age from the size of the body or something like that. Finally, after one month, he showed me that transfer document. And then I became a monk at the monastery. I studied Tibetan language and also the Tibetan Buddhist philosophy for almost six years in that monastery. When I first got into the monastery, I had some problems because I missed my nomadic life. I missed my parents. As a nomad boy, I can go everywhere, but in the monastery, I cannot do that. As a nomad, I didn't know anything about these things. I had some problems before I could get used to it. But even in the monastery, since the monastery has no authority to give the education opportunity to the monk students because of the Chinese government, the Chinese government made many new rules and regulations for the monastery. Even in that monastery, I don't get much opportunity to study, and sometimes Whenever they are some visitors from another country or from the Tibetan government, what they, Chinese officials, do is send message to the monastery and tell us to have the lessons or to gather together for the puja, which is a prayer ceremony. They are pretending 
that they are giving the opportunity for the monks to practice our religious activities. On the other hand, I was quite lucky. My teacher was a very kind man. He's a true practitioner, and since he's considered me as his student, I always try to get the good qualities that he possessed. That helps me. He was very smart because when he was young, he went to the Sierra Mountain, or excuse me, Sierra Monastery, one of the three main Tibetan monasteries in central part of Tibet. He told me the whole story of Tibet and other political situations. I remember that every evening he would teach me all these things. I also remember that he taught me many things about His Holiness Dalai Lama, how a group of people searched for him and picked him up as the true Dalai Lama. I remember all those stories. And finally, because there are no religious rites in that monastery, my teacher advised me that it is best for me to go to India, where there are human rights, where there are individual rights, where there are political rights. Then my mind changed, and my teacher advised me, even though in Tibet, those three big monasteries are still there. They are already destroyed, and there are no religious rites, even in those three big monasteries in Tibet. That's why he advised me to go to India and continue my studies. He always told me this indirectly. He never told me directly that, oh, you should go to India. Again, because I can understand what he means whenever he advised me, he advised me indirectly. He advised me to go to India and continue my studies. That was in 1985. One of the elder monks came back from Tibet, or excuse me, to Tibet from India to meet my teacher because they were friends when they were young. They were in one of the same monasteries. That old monk came back from India to Tibet to visit my teacher. He spent seven days in our monastery. He told us each and everything about the three big monasteries in India, about the religious rites, about the facilities and that you have the opportunity to learn the Buddhist philosophies. He told us everything in detail. He told us about the Tibetan government in exile, and he also told us about the culture of the teachers that was supposed to happen in 1985. And he told me that there are many people from America and many people from different parts of Europe who were helping the Tibetan government in exile. That was the first time when I realized something about the Tibet situation. Also, I learned a little about the Tibetan political situation. Our teacher has about 60 students, so everyone has to go through a history of Tibetan teachings. One day, I have some friends about the same age, and since we all, since we heard all the stories about India, and then finally we decided to escape and go to India with some of my friends. One night I was sleeping and was thinking about planning to go to India, and then suddenly I have a second thought that if I go to India, it's so far. I would surely miss my family members and friends, especially my teacher. He was old, and if I go to India, who is going to take care of him? I worried, but then I decided to go to India. That time I decided in my mind, so I told my friends I was not planning to go to India because of my parents and because of my old teacher. Then after six or seven days, I was not feeling very good, and again my mind is coming up. With these second thoughts, the third thought that, oh, it's better if you, got, if you go to India to continue your studies, at that very moment, I realized that it could be what we call my karma, the karmic action, or even if I have to think 
about my teacher and think about my parents, the causes and karmic situation comes on me. So I decided to go to India. Even though I have many friends, many close friends, I never told them that I'm planning to go to India because it's not a very good idea. But I have two other friends, including myself. We are three. We always, for the few days, have been planning how to do that, how to take the trip to India. And I remember that we had been planning and trying to get some money for our trip. Then I told a lie to one of my friends. I'm just going back to my hometown to meet my parents. And I told him to look after my teacher because at that time, he was quite old. I told a lie to one of my friends and I asked him to look after my teacher. I sent a message to my parents and I said I was supposed to do some special religious ceremony. In that ceremony, I had to do a demonstration of debate. That's why I sent a message to my parents to come down to the monastery to witness, to bring some money and to bring some food. My parents showed up with some money, some food, and they came down to the monastery to attend the ceremony. During the ceremony, I prayed and offered money to all the monks in the monastery, and I made some offerings to the Buddha. I prayed to all the monks because I had to go to India. I have only two reasons I decided to go to India. The first reason is to get the blessing and meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And the second reason is to continue my studies. I heard that there are individual rights and equal opportunities in the monasteries in India to continue your studies. Then I told a lie to my teacher. Usually he gives me all the keys to the doors and boxes, and we have a few boxes in the door keys. I keep all the keys with me. One morning I went to my teacher and I told him the lie that I'm going back to see my parents. I'm going back to the nomad area. Then I gave him all the keys in his hand. By that time, I was preparing to leave for India. My parents had come down to the monastery to attend the ceremony. I told my teacher that I'm going back with my parents for at least 15 days or maximum of one month. I told my teacher that after one month, I would come back to the monastery. Along with my two other friends and my parents, we left the monastery. Then we proceed towards the town called Selene, and that was the day that I departed from my monastery. You can see how it weighed so heavy on him that he had to lie, you know, to his friends, to his parents, his family, and to his teacher, and, you know, how much that weighed on him. Even though this was to help better his life, and so he could help more people. When I departed from my teacher, I considered him as my guru, my own teacher. That moment was the saddest moment of my life. As soon as we reached that small town called Selene, I told some lies to my own parents and I had some belongings that I'm trying to hide because we are planning to go to India. Then I went with my parents to home and spent six to seven days with them. And I did some prayers. I did some special prayers along with my parents and then I left. During the six or seven days I spent at my parents' home, I read the whole text of the path to enlightenment as a prayer for my grandfather. I told a lie to my parents that I was going back to the monastery. My parents gave me a bunch of butter, cheese, and some money. And instead of going to the monastery, I went to the small town called Selene, where my other two friends were waiting for me. 
that were also planning and ready to escape from Tibet. We went to the place where we hide some of our belongings and we took them back. From Celine, we went to Gayamo. That was the first time that I rode a train. We took a train from Celine to Gayamo. We had a very good time on that train because we had cheese and curd with us. Once we reached Gayamo, we bought a bus ticket from Gayamo to Lhasa. That bus belongs to a Chinese company. The bus was supposed to leave early the next morning. As soon as we woke up, we went to the bus. When we got to the bus, we took our own seats because there's a number on the tickets. But some of the Chinese showed up and they tried to kick us away from the bus. The bus company people gave our seats away to Chinese. One of our friends, he's quite strong, and I went to the bus office. My friend started beating that bus officer from whom we bought our bus ticket. They are a little bit afraid, and they told us that they were sorry, but they cannot give us seats. They gave our seats to other Chinese and other tourists. They treated us like that. We decided not to stand on that bus because we are angry and not very happy with the people who treated us so poorly. We tried to get our money back. Finally, we got our money back, took back all of our luggage, and we took another bus to Lhasa. The driver of the other bus was Tibetan. He knew we were monks, so he gave us seats at the front of the bus. We were very, very lucky. After two days and one night, we reached Lhasa, which is the capital city of Tibet. We had a little bit of a problem with the language because the Tibetan language we speak is from the eastern part of Tibet. The accent is totally different from the people who speak Tibetan in central Tibet. But luckily, we met many good people, many kind Tibetan people who live in that area. They took us into the palace of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which is called the Patala Palace. They showed us his room, his offices, and everything. They took us to visit all the historical places, the pilgrimage places, and also they showed us each and everything in that town. I saw the images of Songstun Gakpo, the king, for the very first time. He was a good and famous king who brought the Buddhism from India to Tibet. He was a great king. His name is King Songsten Gampo. We went to get blessings and we went to see a huge Shakyamuni Buddha statue, what we usually call as Jowo, located in Lhasa at Jokan Temple. Just to expand a little bit, what he's talking about the Patala Palace is where His Holiness the Dalai Lama lived um, in Tibetan monks and uh, ministers and stuff would meet. Um, it was like the Vatican when His Holiness Dalai Lama lived in Tibet. But after he fled and left Tibet, the Chinese, of course, took that over. Now it's a Disneyland where tourists come and they pay the Chinese government to tour the, the Patala Palace, the Buddhist Vatican, um, and a lot of the Buddhist um, documents and old teachings and, and books and stuff have been destroyed um, by the Chinese um, communist government because they don't want this um, these teachings to continue. They want it stopped. So I just want to expand a little bit more on what the Patala Palace actually is. For the Tibetans, this is a precious and something very important. I got the blessing from that statue. There's a saying that everybody 
is saying in front of the huge statue of Buddha Shakyamuni, which is called the Jowo. If you pray and if you tell your mission to him, it will help you to fulfill your dream, or he will make it so. I offer some butter lamps, and I prayed that I would be able to go to India to get the blessing from His Holiness. And to continue my studies, I prayed to remove all the obstacles on the way to India. We spent about seven days in Lhasa. After seven days, we proceeded to the village of Tashi Lumpo in Shigatse. As soon as we reached the village of Tashi Lumpo, we met three other Tibetans who are from the northeast area of Tibet. They had a compass. Those three Tibetans were also planning to go to India. We made our own group and we started our journey. There we brought many Buddhist texts. But once we reached the Tashilumpo, we realized it's not possible for us to take them with us. We always walk. It's too heavy to bring all those texts on our back. We had decided to leave all those texts with one older monk in the monastery. We did not sleep in the guest room at the monastery because the Chinese government kept a record of all the guests in that guest room. What we had to do was sleep outside the monastery in the courtyard. After that, we started our journey. In the middle of the night, we started our journey because during the daytime, it's not possible. After walking for about 17 days, we finally reached the Himalayan ranges. Most of the time, we slept during the day and walked during the night. One night, when we were walking, when there suddenly was a jeep, in that jeep were three Chinese troops. They told a lie. We said we were planning to go on a pilgrimage to Mount Kalesh. We consider Mount Kalesh to be a pilgrimage place. Since there were Chinese police, they knew that this was not the way to Mount Kalesh. They told us it's better to go back because this is not the right way to Mount Kalesh. Then we decided to go back a few yards. They didn't catch us. They sent us back from where we came from. We did not follow that road because there were many Chinese police. We took another road during the daytime and the nighttime. After a few days, we reached a very small town that was quite near the border of Nepal and Tibet. We spent some time with the local people of that town. We told them that we are going to India and they started helping us and they showed us the right way. They told us that if we follow on that particular path, that there are many police and they will catch you. They showed us another way, which is quite difficult to cross. That way is on the high mountains. There is very, excuse me, there is many icy and snow that is difficult to cross. But that is the best way to cross away from the Chinese police. We had some money, so we bought some sampa, which is a uh, flour that they use. They mix it with water and they eat it. As you know, the sampa is the flour of the barley. We bought some sampa to eat on the way, and then we again started our journey, and we tried to cross that very high Himalayan mountain. It took us almost two days to cross that very high mountain. Most of the monks, most of the people in our group were the nomads, and we were used to climbing high mountains. But one of our friends is not a nomad, and he's not used to climbing such high Himalayan mountains. He had a very terrible time. He had a lot of pain in his leg. He had a very terrible time, but I carried all his luggage with my own luggage to try to help him. My apologies for the brief show interruption. 
Are you in need of healing? I am beyond blessed and elated to be able to offer healing sessions to you. I am able to offer healing sessions at an intuitive, quantum, and or angelic level. The mode of healing used depends on the healing you require. We begin with a discovery call. This call lasts approximately 30 minutes. It is absolutely free and is used for us to get to know each other and explore your healing needs. After this, if you wish to continue, we will have the initial consultation call. Here I will explain to you what modes of healing I will be using, what this entails, and what to expect. This session will last one hour. The minimum donation is $20. Next is the actual healing sessions. These sessions last for one hour each. The minimum donation is $50 per session or three sessions for $100. If money is an issue for you, which it is for just about all of us, please do not hesitate to book a discovery call. Again, reminder, that is absolutely free. We can discuss during that call the minimum donation or possibly bartering, which I'm always open to. To book a session, please contact me at Faith and More Podcast at gmail.com. Bless you, and I hope to work with you soon. Finally, after two days, we crossed that high Himalayan mountain. It was very difficult. When you are on the peak of that Himalayas, it is very difficult to breathe. When you reach the peak or on the top of the mountain, you feel kind of dizzy because of the air. If you eat garlic, it really is helpful. Sometimes in Tibet, we eat various kinds of grass or other plants that have a strong smell. If you feel dizzy, try to smell that plant. It helps. We had a very hard time up on the mountain. We spent one day in the snow trying to climb that high mountain because the mountain is sloped like this. And he makes, the, um, makes an acute angle. And the sun is shining from this side and the other side. All the snow is like ice, very hard, difficult to walk on. The mountain is steep, so it is very difficult. But one of our friends, who is from Calm area, he is a very strong man. He is leading our group and trying to find us some way to cross. It took us one day to cross that Himalayan mountain. As soon as we crossed the top of the hill, we tried to go down the mountain. Since there was sunshine, all the ice and all the snow started melting. Then it's very difficult. When you're trying to step on the ice and snow, you sink down and there's ice under the snow. We had a terrible time. One time I was stuck in very thick ice and my leg, right, my right leg went into deep snow on the mountains. I tried to pull out my leg, but then my left leg would sink into the ice. It took me a few hours just to get out of that ice. At the moment, I thought, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. My mind and my eyes filled up with tears and regret because now I'm going to die in this snow mountain. And I should not have done this because I told a lie to my teacher. I told a lie to my parents. Now I'm going to die in this snow because my body is exhausted and I can feel that my body is cold. I cannot get out of this snow because there was so much snow and ice. And I keep going deeper and deeper in the snow. And I thought that, oh, now I'm not able to get the blessing from His Holiness the Dalai Lama or go to India. I cannot make my trip to India. I felt out of control. 
and hopeless. My other friends tried to pull me up from the snow, but when they tried to pull me up, they also got stuck in that snow. Also, I have a lot of luggage on my back. It made me very heavy. One of my friends told me to pull off all the luggage. Half of my body was in the snow. So I pulled off all the luggage and gradually I was able to keep my mind in control and get out with the help of my friends. This is another lesson I learned from this experience. When you are stuck in the snow, it is always the best way to come out of the snow if you have a blanket or whatever, a huge luggage, just kept it like this in front of you and put your hands like this on try and try to come out with the support from that luggage. Then what we have decided that if you step, if we walk, it's very difficult. If you do like I did sometime, there are huge holes and you might just get into the holes of the snow in the mountains. What we had to do instead of walking, we had to lay down and roll like a ball. If you roll down it much, it's much easier. So everybody tied their luggage very tightly on their backs and we rolled down like a ball. After about half an hour of rolling and rolling down, we then felt some thorns and rocks. We are now at the bottom of the snow mountain. We now felt we were safe and we are at the bottom of this snow mountain. It was between spring season and summer season and the rays of the sun were quite hot. There was an avalanche that's coming down from the mountain. I can see that it was falling down on our heads. I tried to jump out of the way. The moment I jumped, the whole area went down. The size of the avalanche was as big as this hall. The other side of the ice was coming out and rolling with the ice and the snow. I thought I'm going to die because of the ice in that avalanche. So I visualized His Holiness the Dalai Lama and I prayed for him to help. It was funny because with the ice, it was as if I was ice skating. It was moving down and it's quite far away. The mountain was like this very steep slope and I was on the ice and because the ice is very huge, I'm not rolling, but luckily I soon reached the bottom of the mountain. It didn't injure me or anything. I was fine. I reached the bottom of the mountain. I was lucky to be alive. Then I looked back and all my friends are still up on the mountain. I am the first one who reached the bottom of the mountain. I walked about 20 minutes far away because it is not very good at the bottom of the mountain because of the avalanche. So just a little more information on, on this because I, I vividly remember this in um, transcribing it is that in essence, what he did was there was a huge piece of ice that he was on. And so this avalanche is coming down behind him and he's not able to get off the piece of the ice because the ice is moving. It's a huge piece of ice. It's moving as the avalanche is pushing it down the mountain. So in essence, what he did was he surfed on a piece of large piece of ice, probably about the size of a room down the mountain on that piece of ice. So he's at the bottom of the mountain. His friends are still up on the mountain and still working their way down. So he says, I took out some kerosene oil that was in my luggage. I made some tea while waiting for my friends to come down. It took more than an hour for them to get to the bottom of the mountain. Finally, everyone made it down and we had a cup of tea. 
it was in my mind as I went down with the ice and the snow that I was just going to die. It did not seem possible that I was still alive because the mountain was so steep and so far away. So it says here, note, we later found out that this mountain was Mount Everest. He, sk he skied down Mount Everest or surfed down Mount Everest on a piece of ice. I was falling down with the ice and snow, but I'm still alive. I visualized and prayed to His Holiness the Dalai Lama from my, from my deep heart. A few years later, His Holiness the Dalai Lama visited our monastery and kept the teachings on the path of enlightenment. Thousands and thousands of monks attended the teaching. Then suddenly among the thousands and thousands of monks, he recognized me and looked at me and smiled. He smiled at me. I believe that I had been protected by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I have very deep faith in him. When I was falling down with the ice, I visualized him and he protected me. I believe that he knew my situation. And that's why he recognized me among the thousands of monks. And he smiled at me. That makes me happy. That's why I have deep faith in him that he's always trying to protect, but excuse me, protect the Tibetan people and the people who are suffering. So anyone out there who's listening that may see all this as very heretical. Um, just please keep in mind that a lot of people do the very same thing with the Pope. A lot of people will risk life and limb and mortgage their home and everything to be able to have an audience with the Pope. And they believe, firmly believe, in the Pope's blessings. Um, there's nothing different um, about the Tibetan people and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I mean, these are People like the Dalai Lama and people like the Pope are very highly realized beings. You could say they're angels, earth angels, if not higher than that. Um, so, you know, please, I beg of you all, if your mind was already poo-pooing on this, please flush it. <laughs> um, these are amazing, amazing beings that want nothing but love and peace for all beings. There's nothing heretical about them. Um, just because they don't believe in what you believe, because they don't know what you know. I mean, one of the monks was talking about being interested in Christianity and studying Christianity. So please keep that in mind and keep an open mind and an open heart. So he continues, when my friends reached the bottom, we had tea together and relaxed for a few hours. Then we resumed our journey. We saw a huge rock with something written on it. Later, some people told us that it was the border of Tibet and Nepal. Once we crossed the Nepal border, we came upon a small monastery. We spent almost three days in that monastery, but then we had run out of food and had to buy some more. In that region, the food is very expensive. We bought some sampa. For this much sampa, they charge one Chinese currency, which is very, very expensive. To get some money to buy food, I decided to sell a valuable animal skin that my parents had given to me. It's a very good shirt. I sold it uh, to some Nepalese for 170 Nepalese rupees. The cost of that shirt is about 200 Chinese currencies. Also, we bought some yellow beans. We weren't used to eating beans as we eat only sampa and butter tea. It was quite difficult to taste the beans when I first ate them. After about two days, we had eaten all of our sampa we had some old Sampa when we were, when, excuse me, when we have new 
fresh Sampa. We don't touch the old one, but since we were running out of our Sampa, we had to eat that old Sampa. In English, it is what you call moldy or fungi. It was delicious because we all were hungry and we don't have any food to eat. I realized that whenever somebody asks me, what is your favorite food? I always remember that situation, that moment. And I say, whenever I'm hungry, that whatever I am eating during that moment, then that is my favorite food. That was the most delicious one. But since we were all very hungry, it was delicious. And I never will forget that delicious Sampa. I love, I so love the lessons in these stories, especially this story, because there's so many. It's just laden with and sewn in so beautifully. So many lessons in this. You know, how often we take for granted the food that we have um, and put our noses up to this, that, or the other, where these people just had, you know, moldy flour that they were eating. Um, and it was the most delicious thing because it's all they had. I mean, some of you who have come, old timers listening, who come from hard times, maybe even younger people who are listening come from hard times, know the value of this and, and, and these lessons. And uh, I wanted to point out that he was talking about butter tea. Um, one of the blessings that I had when we were going to the center and uh, got to hang out with, uh, with the monks and stuff was that they made butter tea. And it's actually tea with butter melted in it. It is very, <laughs> very salty. Uh, you must have an acquired taste for it, but it's something that is very traditional to them and something that they literally live off of. Um, I don't know how well it is for their heart, but um, <laughs> it's just one of the things of their culture that we were able to experience that is, even though it wasn't very tasty, extremely salty, it was just very awesome and such a blessing to experience. So the Geshe continues, that's why when I was small, I remember my parents always when I tried to eat some Sampa. And it was, if I throw some Sampa away, my parents always caught me because they had a bad experience. They had a hard time in 1959 when the Chinese troops came into Tibet. And that's when the Chinese Communist government invaded Tibet was in 1959. When the Chinese troops came into Tibet, during that time, thousands and thousands of Tibetans died from starvation. No food at all. I remember the advice given by my parents. When I was small, if I throw away a piece of bread, they always caught me. They considered that food was precious, and it is a product of many other beings' effort and hard work. That time I realized that was really good advice. We had nearly run out of our food, but fortunately we crossed into Kadari, where some Nepalese farmers grow potatoes. We stole some potatoes from their field. We were hiding and stealing potatoes. We put all the potatoes together and made a small fire, and we fried the potatoes on that fire. We found a small sack so we could bring the rest of the potatoes with us, and we started our journey once again. After that village, there was another very huge and deep mountain, but it was not a snow mountain. We had to cross that mountain once again. When we reached the top of that mountain, even though there is no snow, it is all foggy. We can't see our own way because it was foggy on that mountain. We started eating the rest of the potatoes that we have cooked. 
We put all the potatoes together on the plain rock. The potatoes were fully mixed up with the mud on the rock. We eat mud and potato all together. That was very delicious. Even though it was a mixture of mud and the potato, so delicious. Fortunately, on that mountain, there are many strawberries. We picked many strawberries and ate everything. We spent a whole day on top of the mountain, and we ate all the strawberries and the potatoes and the mud, everything. It began to get dark, so we came down to the bottom of that mountain. We spent that night in one of the very, very old abandoned houses there. I'm a mature man, but when I was small, I cannot sleep in very old houses because of the scare and because of the fearness. But if you are in that situation and you get the opportunity to sleep in that kind of old house, you enjoy your sleep very much because we were homeless. We had to sleep in that house and it was a good sleep. So just a little bit more information. Tibetans are very, very, as in most Asian cultures, they're very superstitious. And they believe that old homes contain a lot of old spirits and souls of the people that live there over the long periods of time. So to them, it's bad luck, bad mojo to go near these places, especially to go in one and sleep or to be in it for any duration of time. Not only do they believe it's bad, but they also believe it's disrespectful. But, you know, as he said, they really had no choice. And he had one of the best night's sleep that he could possibly get. We woke up early that morning and fed at the mountain that we had just crossed. If you look at that mountain, it is beyond our imagination that we had crossed. That mountain is quite steep and high. It's all foggy. We have crossed that mountain, but we don't know how we have crossed it. Again, we have continued our journey. It's very difficult to walk because of the fog and because of cold. And the air was difficult. In our group, some people wanted to go this way. Some others wanted to go that way. We had a little bit of arguments. Some of the monks in our group are totally exhausted. They don't want to cross another mountain. They decided to go on the road of the Chinese trucks and the Nepalese border police. Once you walk on the streets, somebody will surely catch you and put you in prison because you were trying to escape Tibet. Some of the monks in our group decided to go in that direction. Some of the people in our group, including myself, encouraged them by reminding them of the 20 days it took us to cross the huge Himalayan mountains and the other mountain. Now we only have a few more distances to cross through the mountains, and then we will be in India. We had a discussion, and I tried to encourage those monks. Suddenly, one of the monks from our group named Ancho disappeared. We were all trying to look for him. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know whether he died or whether he is alive. He just disappeared suddenly. We were shouting his name, Ancho, because there was a very thick forest and foggy weather. We can't see him because of the fog. We shout his name, but he never answered back. We don't know what happened to him, whether he's still alive or not. We heard shouts by some children, and we knew there was a family near, so we proceeded towards that family. We saw one small path. We saw some small footprints and some big, big footprints on that path. We followed that path. Finally, we reached the place where we spent another night. We met two people. 
they were a man and a small child. We recognized because we met them earlier somewhere. That man and child had some food, and we requested them to save some of their food for us because, again, we are running out of our food. The man decided to sell us a pack of Sampa. We paid him 30 rupees and bought a pack of Sampa from him. Half of the Sampa we left there for him. Then we could see small paths on the mountain. We followed that small path and crossed the mountain again, and we reached the backside of the mountain. All this time it was raining, and in the rain there are small leeches that suck your blood. Our legs were full of leeches and sucking our blood on that mountain. Wherever we walked, we don't know how they attacked us. Our bodies were full of leeches, and they were sucking our blood, especially on the nerves. They stuck on nerves like a magnet, and they suck your blood away. Since they are stuck on your nerves, it's difficult to pull them off. The best way is to use salt. If you put salt on your body, then that helps and the leeches drop off. Might be gross, but I can, I can totally confirm that salt will cause leeches to drop off. Um, back when I was a young lad, um, my grandparents had a place in the country and we used to swim in the creek, or creek, as some people say. We said creek. Um, and there were leeches in the creek. And it was not uncommon for me to come out with leeches, let's just say, on my nether region. Yeah, quite embarrassing uh, to scream to your mother that you've got a leech on your knapsack, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> And so she had to get the salt and bring it in and salt the leech on my knapsack to get it to drop off. They are the nastiest things. I mean, I know they're part of God's creation. Bless him for making them for whatever reasons he did. But they, it is scary and terrifying, especially when you're a child, to have something, anything on your knapsack, let alone let alone a leech. And this happened a few times. So yeah, it, I agree with him. Yes, I, I can attest. Salt and leeches does work. He continues, that night we spent together and also with that man and small child. We were eating only sampa and water and they were cooking. They brought some potatoes, but they didn't give us even a piece of potato. As monks, we should not steal their food. We have a strong desire of eating potatoes but he didn't give us even a piece of potato in that night. He also was running out of food. Since he knows the way of how to cross that mountain, we gave him 40 Chinese currency as a guide. We requested him to show us the way to cross that mountain. And since he's a merchant, he knows how to cross. Finally, he showed us, guided us. He showed us the direction to go to India. The worst thing is that we cannot understand his language very well. That's the worst part. But he showed us the direction to go to India, and we followed on that direction. After following in that direction, finally there is a small path that splits in two directions. Again, we have some problems throughout the monks in our group. They wanted to go to the right. Three of us wanted to go to the left. We had some problems because, again, the passage goes to a different direction, and this passage goes to another direction. We don't have any idea where we are going or where those passages lead us. We're trying to decide. We have some problems here, and some of the monks decided that they don't want to go in that direction. They are ready to follow the other path. We rested, had some sampa together that belongs to everyone, 
Afterwards, we distributed the sampa. Each monk got his share of sampa. There isn't any water around to make dough, so we ate it with the snow. If you eat your sampa with snow, it becomes very big, and that helps you to fill your belly. You make a very big sampa, like a dough ball, and you eat it. Because we five have been traveling together since Tibet, I told them that we should not split into two groups. We should be one group. It's better because we can help each other if one faces some problems. Finally, those other two monks are very strong, and they just don't want to go to the other direction. We followed these two monks and went in that direction, but that was on the wrong direction. Again, we reach a very high mountain. That mountain cannot be crossed. But from the top of that mountain, we can see some very old houses made out of bamboo. That night, we slept in one of the bamboo houses. And in the night, we made a fire in that bamboo house. Since there is many small, excuse me, many bamboo houses, we made a big fire in that night. Unfortunately, one of my friends, Shu, was also burnt in that fire. We woke up. In the morning, one of his shoes is already burned by the fire, and he has no shoe. So I take it that they were putting their shoes by the fire to dry them out since they had been going through the snow. They definitely had to have been wet. So he said, we tried to go a different place. And so now this one monk's only got one shoe. So we tried to go to different places to see if there was something left behind from a previous group. Fortunately, we saw one white pair of shoes that was left from a previous group. The monk used those white shoes. We think that those shoes were given to him by the three jewels. And the three jewels in Buddhism is equivalent to uh, the Holy Trinity in um, Catholicism. This is our brief, our belief, excuse me, because it was the right time for him. From the top of the mountain, we could only see the clouds and fog and the trees, but deep in the middle of the forest, we can hear some of the voices of the people and the children that were playing and shouting. Because we heard the noise of the children, we moved down the mountain until we reached that village. We got all of our belongings together, and we went to one of the families to beg for food. We gave them our torch, which is a flashlight, and other items, and they gave us some sampa. That was very, very delicious. And again, we continued on our journey. It took us one complete day to get to the opposite side of the mountain. It was raining heavily, and we are hungry, and it's difficult. We don't know how to go to India now. If we go in that direction, we are not very sure whether we will reach India or not. I was worried and full of regret, and suddenly I saw a bunch of sheep sleeping under their shelter. We are in the rain, and they are very peaceful. At that time, I wished I could be one of those sheep because they were sleeping so peacefully. It is too late to go back to Tibet now, and it is difficult and very far away. And now we are not going the right direction to India. We had a terrible time. Later on, we came across a field that grows corn. We stole some of the corn and ate in the row of corn. There was a small cave that we found. In the cave, we slept together, all of my friends in that cave. The next morning, we woke up to find there are many Nepalese, and we don't understand any Nepalese, and they don't understand any Tibetan. We had a very big problem. What I did was I have one watch and I gave my watch to one of the Nepalese and I tried to get some food from him. He took my watch and gave us food. He gave us some potatoes 
and wheat noodles. That was the most delicious food I had during my entire journey. Even after just having the three big bowls of noodles, my stomach is full, but my mind is not yet full. We kept eating even after consuming three bowls. Everybody is full and it's sort of hard to walk because you are full. You've just eaten more than three big bowls and you're, you're all full. Everybody is lying down like a pig. <laughs> Even though there's another small village on the opposite side, if you go directly, it will take only six hours, only six hours, to get to that town. It's a small village called Bakhtapur, but it took us two days for us to reach that small village. We sold our belongings, we bought some food, and we ate a lot of food and relaxed. A Nepalese child came up to us and he showed us how to cross the border because there are two different border police and usually they said it is quite difficult to cross the border. That day we prayed. We did the chanting called Nizur Ma. We were praying Nizur Ma. That Nepalese child, he's very smart. He left for a few hours and checked everything out at the border. He came back and said that there's nobody at the border. We went straight across the border and got to the other side. Nepalese rupees for a big plate of rice. You can eat one or two big plates of rice. It is quite cheap, and we ate a lot of rice. The owner of that small restaurant was surprised because we ate three big plates of rice at one time. We are happy because Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, is quite near, and there are many buses going to Kathmandu City. We decided to leave some of our old clothes, and we had a calculator that we gave to the small child. Then we took a bus from the village to Kathmandu. Finally, we reached Kathmandu. Once we reached Kathmandu, the capital city of Nepal, we hear that there is a Tibetan office, which is called the Tibetan Reception Center office. We directly went to that office, and the people there took care of us. They gave us a place to sleep. They gave us food. They gave us clothes and they gave us medicine. They are kind, and they are helping the refugees. After spending two weeks in reception center, they bought us bus tickets from Nepal to India. They put every one of us in the bus, and we reached Delhi, the capital city of India. From Delhi to Dharamsala, again, there are some Tibetan people who work in the reception center in Delhi. They bought us our bus ticket to Dharamsala, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama lives. We spent one week in Dharamsala. I was with another 26 refugees. One day they gave us opportunity to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He shook hands of each and every refugee, and he asked questions like, where are you from? Where would you like to go? To school or to the monastery or some other places? Nobody was able to answer because everybody is happy and everybody is crying and nobody is giving him answers. All the 26 people there were crying that time I felt a very strange feeling. I just cannot express that feeling. It's like a small child. When that small child meets his own mother, he has some sort of extraordinary feeling. When we see His Holiness the Dalai Lama in real life, our heart is so overwhelmed, and I just cannot explain or describe that kind of feeling, but it's some kind of special feeling that I experienced. Even though it is very hard for me to tell each and every story because I cannot speak out in front of him, finally I was able to tell him something about why I escaped Tibet, the two reasons I will, of my escaping Tibet, and then finally 
he advised me to go to the monastery. He advised me to continue my Buddhist philosophy studies. I can't believe I'm in front of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. It's like a dream. Still, I'm kind of like in the air. I don't believe that I'm in front of him. It's like my dream. I told His Holiness Dalai Lama about the people who are still in Tibet, especially the old people who wish to get the blessings of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, but can't because they are too old or they can't escape Tibet. I told him about my teacher who's too old to escape Tibet, and I requested him to bless my teacher and asked him to pray for all those beings who are suffering. At that time, I have some problems with my stomach. I had an ulcer. I told him about my ulcer. He gave me some medicine that is called Renshin Rimbu. Renshin Rimbu means precious pill. It helps my ulcer problem. It helped my ulcer problem. I used half of the pills for myself and sent half of the pills back to Tibet to my parents. And these are herbal medicines. Um, I remember one, just to share a quick story. I know this is running long, folks, sorry. But I pray you're enjoying it. Uh, one of the times we were at the center, Haven was having a really hard time with her stomach. She was feeling just absolutely terrible. By the way, Haven's an empath. So she, at that time, had difficulties on absorbing other people's energies, but not able to get rid of it, to flush it out. So people would come to the center, like people go to church, and just dump all their negativity. And Haven was very sensitive to that. So she would pick up that negative energy and get quite sick. Well, while we were there, Tenzin uh, saw that she was sick and was, was talking to her in his broken English. So he had what they call Mani pills, which is very, very similar to the Rinchin Rimbo pills. So she took part of that pill and, and took it in with some water and like within five ten minutes she can she felt completely better now some people might say that's a placebo effect um i don't know i you know i am all for herbs and haven is a, a big um master of herbs and an and herbalist of what works for what and that really sparked her on the herbal journey uh, afterwards so yeah, just amazing, amazing stuff. So the Geshe took, you know, some of the pills for himself and sent most of them back home. Then I moved down to the southern part of India to get admission to the monastery, the Gumong Monastery. Even in the monastery, I had some problems. We were poor when we got to the monastery. It was real starvation. We had many problems. But since we don't have much time, I'm not going to share those problems. Since then, I've been practicing and I've been continuing on my studies of Buddhist philosophies. This is just a brief story. <laughs> so Balmo says, it was not so brief. It was an amazing story. Thank you. I would also like to know how he was chosen for the group. He's asking the interpreter how he was chosen for the group. And what does he think of traveling around the country? And the guest replied, in addition to my Buddhist studies, I also work for the monastery. For the last 15 or 16 years, I've been learning Buddhist philosophies at Gomong Monastery. But in the monastery, each and everybody has a responsibility. We all have a duty to perform. A few years ago, for about six months, I spent six months as a teacher to look after the students who came from Mongolia. Not from Mongolia, Russia, the other Mongolia. I spent six months as their teacher at Dharamsala. I've been working for the monastery since then. 
for the last three years, I have elected as, or excuse me, I was elected as one of the administrators for the whole monastery. Also this year, I finished the master's degree in Buddhist philosophies and obtained my Geshe degree. Some of the officers in the head office requested me to join this group because for the last three years, I've been working very hard for the monastery and I've been taking the full responsibilities on my shoulders. They asked me to take part in this group too. I obtained my degree and had some time and I agreed to do this. That's why I was chosen for this group. The second reason is that I heard America was a very big country and a very powerful country. One of my younger brothers lives in New York City and has been living in this country for the last few years. I thought that it was a good opportunity for me to see such a big country and experience something new. At the same time, I can meet my brother in New York City. When I got to this country, I had the opportunity to call my parents on the phone for the first time since I left my parents. I was able to talk to them on the phone because it's cheap and it's very easy to call from here to China from here to Tibet, rather than from India to Tibet. When I talked on the telephone to my father, he told me that 20 days after I left, he became very worried about me. He was distraught for 20 days, crying and thinking of me because my father didn't know whether I was alive or not. My father got the message from the monastery that I didn't come back to the monastery because I had told a lie to the monastery and had lied to my parents. My father told me, that for 20 days he did not sleep in his house. For the 20 days he was roaming here and there, crying and praying for me. My father did special prayers for me. My father, my teacher, and my other relatives, they did special prayers for me. My parents still hope that one day we will meet each other. But my teacher who was very old when I left Tibet. He was already dead. He is no more on this earth. But my parents still hope that one day we can meet each other. This is about all what I can share with you. And there's an addendum to this, and it says that uh, um, from Belmo, we found out about two months after this interview that Geshe Lomsong Kunga received the sad news that his mother had passed away. So that, my dear friends, uh, is just three. Three excerpts from this beyond amazing book. And Infinite thanks, blessings, and love to Belmo and George for allowing me this blessing to um, be able to transcribe the stories of these amazing, amazing, beyond amazing beings. And I so hope and pray you all go out and get this book. I'll have links in the show description to the links on Amazon. Please get it if you can. Um, $11 and some change. Um, Starbucks coffee is that much, if not more. Um, and it's definitely part of your contribution to your purchase goes to help the monastery. It is definitely something that you'll want to read over and over. It's definitely a great gift to give to family. Even if you're not Buddhist, there, as you see, and I hope and I pray you heard and felt from my soul to your soul how um, much we can learn from these stories of these amazing beings, what they've endured, what their families endured and still endure. 20 years later, um, the situation in Tibet has only gotten worse. It has not gotten better. So let us pray that 
by some miracle, something happens, something changes, and China runs out of uranium and just leaves Tibet to the Tibetans. I mean, we can only hope and pray. Also, I will have a link, a direct link to Japongamong Monastery in the show description if anyone would like to make a donation or contribution to them directly. Believe me, folks, the American dollar goes a long way in India. That's a lot of rupees. So if you can offer them even just, say, $5, it goes a long way to helping the monastery and the monks. So I will pause here, everyone. Thank you all so much. Again, I apologize that this ran two hours. <laughs> but I so hope and pray that you all were as fixated on it as I was Um even 20 years later, these stories still really vibrate and resonate with my soul. Um, it's, it's so amazing. So please don't turn off the show yet. Please stick around for the um, prayers, requests, and updates, as well as a very short blessing. The Oblates of Perpetual Light is the first of its kind. We are the very first group of Oblates to fully utilize the internet to organize and communicate. This allows everyone and anyone to join from all over the world. The Oblates of Perpetual Light are inclusive, meaning everyone is welcome regardless of their beliefs, faith, identification, gender, sexual preference, etc. We are independent, meaning that we are not affiliated with any church other than being connected with the Faith and More Ministries, and we are trans-denominational. We are not affiliated with any one religion. We greatly respect the beliefs and freedoms of others. We are all children of the universe. Only four things are required of any obligated perpetual light. The first, study and contemplate some sacred texts of your faith at least once a day. It's up to you how much you study and contemplate. It can be as little as a sentence or as much as you wish. You choose when, where, and how long. Number two is prayer. Prayer is key in the heart of the oblate's perpetual light. It is imperative that an oblate pray sometime during the day or night. Again, this is up to you to choose when, where, and for how long. The Oblates will gather together online, typically Zoom, at least once a month. There is also a Facebook group where Oblates can meet and commune more often if they choose. There are Oblates who are very social and there are Oblates who are very private. All are respected. If you are more private and or ascetic, you will need to keep in contact with the director of Oblates, moi, privately. Number four love and respect all members regardless of their faith we are here as a group not just as individuals everyone's faith beliefs views etc will be respected bullying hate attacks and etc will not be tolerated if this all sounds kosher and great to you and you would like to become a member of the oblates perpetual light please contact me our director at oblates.pl at gmail.com. Again, that's oblates, O-B-L-A-T-E-S dot P-L at gmail.com. I hope to see you as an oblate very soon. This week's prayer request and updates are as follows. Haven, Clint, Wyatt, and their family. Bill, Joanne, and their family. Emily, Jonathan, and their family, Kayla, Terry, Denise, 
Stephanie, Katie, Sarah, and Kia, Elaine, and Bob. I do have an update on Clyde. He was actually able to get his surgery done this past week. His doctor had an opening, or I'd say his surgeon had an opening, and he was able to have the old pacemaker removed and a pacemaker defibrillator put in. Uh, they also had to um, clean out an artery that was clogged as well. Uh, he is recovering and was released from the hospital on Friday. So let us please keep him, his daughter Lisa, and their family in our heart, thoughts, and prayers. Also prayers for Leg, excuse me, Lana, Megan, Molly, Gwen, Octavia, Trish, Chad, and their family, Bishop Beckley and his family, Brother Abel, Mike S., Kelly, and their family, Michael, Shelly and their family, Tanya and her family, Cheryl, Father Mike, Eddie, and Eddie's mother, Becky. And definitely please keep Father Mike in your prayers as he's making the move from Washington State to San Jose, California, by himself uh, with his Fufulu pup pup, Stephen. Um, and it is a lot of stress and anxiety on Father Mike, as well as not to mention all of the health issues and concerns that he has. So please keep him in your heart, thoughts, and prayers. Also prayers for Emma, Jean, Kathy, Tony, and their family, Michael T., Kyra, and her family, Jan, James, and Linda, Jill, and her family, and Kimberly. So for our closing prayer and blessing, I would like to use a uh, Buddhist prayer of the Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu prayer. So let us pray. May all beings everywhere be happy and free, and may the thoughts, words, and actions of my own life contribute in some way to that happiness and to that freedom for all. Amen. Secret If you're still listening, I have a special gift for you. At least I hope and pray you perceive it as and receive it as a special gift and blessing. The Book Nook will be this Wednesday, a Book Nook for October. It's one you won't want to miss. It's great, great, great stuff. So I will see you all there Wednesday. I so hope and pray you've enjoyed the show and that you found everything that you're searching for and more here with us. Stop by anytime, all the time. You are family. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with as many people as possible. Subscribe, rate, and review. And if you really enjoyed the show, please consider making an offering. Offerings are a great way to help sustain and improve the show and the Faith and More ministry. Offerings can be made through Patreon at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash faithandmorepodcast. Next is prayers. I love to pray and our Faith and More family love to pray as well. So let us pray for you. You can email me directly at faithandmorepodcast at gmail.com. I am also offering healing sessions now that involve angelic, intuitive, and quantum healing. This is done via phone or Zoom. Due to the scope, energy, and time involved in this type of healing, there is a minimum donation required. Please contact me for more information at faithandmorepodcast at gmail.com. Also, please don't forget about our YouTube channel. There's lots of great videos there, and it gives you more of an immersive experience. Just go to youtube.com slash at faithandmorepodcast. 
So until next time, have a most blessed week and know that each and every one of you are in my heart and prayers. Bless you.